Hello everyone, I'm Karen Hardwick, a clinically and spiritually trained psychotherapist and leadership coach, and welcome to Saving You a Seat, leadership conversations from around the table. Join us as we dig deep into how the power of connection is a game changer for leaders at work and in life. This is what I know. We are not leaders having a leadership crisis. We're leaders having a human being crisis. We are often disconnected from the very things that make us fully and wholly human, our stories, our messiness, all the things we hide away about ourselves, and also disconnected from our empathy, gifts, and resilience. When we own these things that I call connection creators, we lead with more courage and grit, love and grace, self-discovery and spirituality. Connection is the antidote, folks. We don't need another leadership paradigm. We need our stories and our truest selves. In this conversation, you will be transformed as we speak with Jerry Colonna, a former private equity superstar turned executive coach and author of Reboot, a book that everyone should be reading. He shares his views on suffering, on how better humans make better leaders, and how by listening deeply to ourselves and to each other, we embark on a journey that is healing and which introduces us to the art of growing up. Okay. Hello, everyone. Do we have a treat for you today? I'm talking with my friend, Jerry Kalana, who is known as the coach with the spider tattoo. Um, We will dive into that a little bit more later. His business career was spent in private equity as a partner for JP Morgan Partners. And before that, he and a partner launched Flatiron Partners, which became one of the most successful early stage investment programs. He is on the board of Naropa University, the only accredited Buddhist inspired university in North America. And he is the CEO and co-founder of Reboot.io, an executive coaching and leadership development firm founded on the premise that better humans make better leaders. Jerry is the author of one of the most amazing life-changing books I've had the privilege of reading. It's called Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Jerry, I'm so delighted you are here this morning. You know, Karen, what a delight to see you again and to be with you. And what a delightful introduction. Thank you for that. Oh, you are so welcome. So you know this story because I had um, the... Well, I'm going to say balls. Yeah, I had the balls to actually write to you after I read your book. And I told you this story, and here it is for our listeners. I first heard of you when my brother called me and said, do you know this guy? Like, do you, have you ever heard of Jerry Kalana? Because I just heard him on a podcast, and he's doing like the same exact work as you are. I bought your book. I fell in love. And... As I was looking at it again last night, I almost highlighted every friggin' word in that book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 
I um, wrote an article for Forbes in which I said, we're not having a leadership crisis. We are having a human being crisis. So, so jump right in. Talk to me about that. Well, first of all, I, I laughed because early on when I was writing the book, I was working with my editor, Hollis Heimbach at HarperCollins, who is by far and away the world's best editor. And she said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, what's your goal? And I said, my goal is to end up with a book that is so well-worn and so interacted with that, like, it's the binding is breaking and that somebody hands a highlighted dog-eared copy to somebody else and says, you need to read this. Of course, that's a terrible sales strategy. <laughs> what they should do is say you should buy another copy. Um, so your, your comment about highlighting every word really moves me. So thank you for that. And then, you know, your, your identification of the crisis that we're in, I think, uh, is really well said. You know, and, and I'll tie it back to both the better humans make better leaders, your notion of the connected leader, but also uh, this notion of growing up. I think that what we are experiencing right now is a profound epidemic of people who hold power not having actually completed their work. The, re the result is that in all sorts of realms, whether it's the political realm, the community realm, our businesses, what we see is the consequence of what one of our favorite teachers, Parker Palmer, likes to say, and that is that violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with suffering. You know, you can make the argument that those who hold power, who don't know what to do with suffering, there is the world's, their employees, their family, and inflict the most damage. And so what I tongue-in-cheek call the art of growing up is in many ways the art of completing our process, which includes the ability to know what to do with suffering. And how many people get to levels of success right? Living in the right zip code, got all these accolades, I'm making X amount of money. What could possibly be wrong with me as they're striving more and more for more and more outer, outer affirmation? And their wounds and their fears are just getting stronger by the day, right? Well, you know, um, we share a love for all things inner psyche. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, I think of both uh, the work of Carl Jung, but also the work of uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. And, um, you know, I'll draw my, my lineage is Buddhist lineage. My lineage comes from from Tibet. We have a powerful notion in our teachings, which is the notion of the hungry ghost. And a hungry ghost is, is uh, I like to describe it as a wraith-like figure who is constantly consuming and is never satiated. And what we're describing really is whether the consumption is of material things or the world or other people <laughs> or uh, status and power, the hungry ghost phenomena is an epidemic right now. 
And I think that there's a, because of that, there's a loss of community or the root of it is a loss of community is a loss of, you know, what you would describe, I think is the connectedness, um, the ability to authentically and fully be present and use empathy as a currency of connection. And, and because that skill set is not as developed as it needs to be, and then we achieve adulthood, chronological adulthood, we suffer collectively. You know, to go back to Parker Palmer's quote you just used about violence, people easily go to the fact that violence is a physical action. And oftentimes, right, it is. So much of that in the world today. And yet, I believe that Parker's also talking about the emotional and the spiritual violence we do as leaders at home, at work, in our places of worship, community, wherever we are, that emotional and spiritual damage that oftentimes is done even unconsciously, right? I mean, I hear people all the time talk about, I just want to feel safe at work. I want that psychologically safe place, and I'm not getting that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree completely, and I'll build upon what you're saying in two ways. The first is that, there's, that we, we must expand the definition of violence beyond that uh, first evocative language of physical violence. You're absolutely right. And, you know, we're sitting here today at a time in the country where wildfires and drought in the West are being met by tornadoes and hurricanes and floods in the East. And there is another form of violence that we do, which is violence to the planet. And Joanna Macy, the Buddhist teacher, would argue that the violence to the planet that we experience outwardly that we inflict outwardly is actually a reflection of the unresolved tensions and conflicts within ourselves as individuals. And here again, if you go back to my notion that, that unfinished, un, you know, leaven lumps of dough masquerading as bread, as leaders, create a violence not only to themselves, their individuals, right, with the depression, with uh, substance abuse, with overwork, uh, violence to their organizations, the lack of psychological safety that you were talking about, but violence to the planet. And once we expand the lens of what that word violence means, and we start to connect it more to that other word, suffering, and suffering can, can induce compassion. And then when we start to see that suffering and violence are actually two sides of the same coin, you know, we, we begin to see a pathway here that, that the first step is to teach our children what to do with their feelings. Our first step is to teach our children what to do with suffering. Instead of rescuing them or telling them it will be okay or all those parenting things that we all do. Even with the best of intentions, I mean, Lord have mercy, have I made some mistakes with my parenting? And yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm famous for making people cry, uh, and as I always say, I don't intend to make them cry. I just intend to make them feel, and then tears tend to come. But you know, what just came to mind is when we talk about parenting in this way, I, and and I'm as 
as guilty as you in, in terms of making those mistakes, I will often pause, especially with a group of men, and bring them back to a moment when they might have been five years old and fell and skinned their knee. And they got two responses. The first is, man up, don't cry. And the second, which is sympathy masquerading as empathy, which is, shh, don't cry. And the irony is, neither one of them acknowledged the feelings, right? The response is, oh, you're hurt? You skinned your knee. Of course you're hurting. I'm so sorry you're hurting. Let me kiss it and make it better. Which is a very different response than man up or shh, don't cry. Don't feel. And that gets carried with us everywhere we go, right? Into our intimate relationships, into our parenting, into the boardroom, when we meet with our teams. But here's one of the things that I'm finding is that we cannot show others empathy until we can connect to ourselves with empathy, right? You say in your book that we, we, in order to grow up and heal and awaken, have to be able to look at ourselves in the mirror unflinchingly. You know, those of us in recovery will say we have to practice rigorous self-honesty. Same concept, right? And then you go on to talk about how you have to do that, though, not with an attitude of criticism, but with self-compassion, right? That's the difference, Jerry. How can we show anybody empathy if we're beating ourselves up? The, the, the term I, I use in my book and in my work is radical self-inquiry. It's very, very similar. And what I often warn is don't weaponize it. So there's two levels operating here. The first is to deny what is in fact going on and to project onto other people our internal conflicts, to externalize responsibility for our internal state to other people. You made me angry. Well, no, they were actually just trying to get their needs met. Right? Radical concept here. <clears throat> I don't like it, but that's different. <laughs> All right. The second thing that we do, and, and my infamous question that my therapist taught me was, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? I'll say that slowly again. How have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? Complicit, not responsible, and the conditions I say I don't want. I don't want to be busy, yet I fill my calendar up. Right. And we don't ask ourselves those questions to induce self-flagellation, which sometimes I think the self-help world inadvertently trips people into. They forget the part that many of those strategies that we developed were strategies in response to suffering. So whether it's substance abuse or overwork or uh, a disconnectedness, to use more of your language, with the world. We do that because the world is really a hard place to operate in. We want to shield ourselves from that suffering because, again, we don't know what to do with the suffering. Well, and those defense mechanisms that often we've cre we created in childhood to help ourselves, right, as you're saying, Jerry, feel safe, feel powerful in 
situations where we had no power, where we didn't feel safe, where we weren't safe, often became our best friends. They became our go-to strategy. That's right. Yeah. They, they were purposeful until they're not. And I was having coffee with my son today, who, by the way, said, when he said, who are you, um, who's on your podcast today? And I mentioned your name and he stopped and he said, Mom, do you know who he is? Like, he's a big guy. <laughs> he's a mocker. Like, yeah. He's a mocker. That's a good Yiddish term. <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. So we chatted about you a little bit. He's a little, he's a little interested, a lot interested in maybe going into private equity. So he had heard about you. Um, but I said, listen to this question, Matthew, because I want you to think about this too. How do we become, because this is one of Jerry's questions, how do we become complicit in creating the very things we say we don't want? So Jerry, I can't tell you how many times I've used that question with clients, with myself. I give you credit. It's just such a powerful, powerful question. Again, not meant to beat people up to say you're completely responsible for this shit show. It's just to say, how are you participating in these things that are not working? Yeah, you know, and, and build upon your notion of, of these strategies as best friends. Uh, a corollary question to ask in that moment is, how has it served you? You know, I was talking to a potential client yesterday, and he was talking about, you know, he feels trapped in his job as CEO. and you know, the word duty became really powerful. And I said, where did you learn that that's how duty manifests itself? And uh, he, he had reached out because a friend had said, you need to talk to somebody. And, and to use his language, he, he needed chemicals to sleep and he needs chemicals to get through the day. And I said, when did your sense of duty and responsibility morph into using chemicals to sleep and using chemicals to get through the day. And that shocked him because of course it doesn't. And I said, perhaps the definition of duty that you grew up with no longer serves you. And perhaps we need to reframe the definition of duty to include rest, that it's your duty as a CEO to rest is a mind bender. Rest is such a holy thing, but we live in a culture where the badge of honor is about, how many times, Jerry, when you say, how are you to somebody, they said, I'm so busy, right? That becomes the badge of, I'm just so busy. I didn't ask you about your calendar. I asked you how you are, right? Um, you know, it's National Recovery Month. September is National Recovery Month. And your hungry ghosts concept that you referred to earlier is a very powerful concept. In the recovery community, that addiction serves as these hungry ghosts inside of us that you can never feed enough. And there's a lot of work now being done on trauma being the gateway drug. It's the trauma 
and the difficulty we have dealing with that pain that leads us to chemicals, as your potential client is calling them. And we're all recovering from something. I mean, addiction doesn't have to be just chemically oriented. So I, I would love to expand that whole concept of recovery and addiction because an awful lot of people are numbing out in a variety of different ways, including our phones, social media. Um, I want to ask you something. So um, a lot of my clients have tried a number of leadership development processes, right? They're focusing on fixing what's wrong with the culture. They're sending their people to executive leadership programs. They have a training on empathy. They want to build trust, so let's do a trust exercise. And they're not doing the inner work on themselves. How do you get your clients to see that the inner work is where it's at? Well, uh, I smile and, and I think of a joke I will often use, which is, you know, a lot of people will call myself or my colleagues and they'll say, you know, we have a trust problem within the organization. We have a culture problem in the organization. And the first question I ask is, well, are you telling each other the truth? And they say, oh, no, 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 we don't trust each other. We can't tell each other the truth. <laughs> it's like, well, we have, you have to actually start by acknowledging the truth, right? Because here's the thing, you know, you referenced uh, psychological safety before. Human beings are miraculous creatures. We have this incredible autonomic nervous system that kind of runs the show. But we also have this parallel parasympathetic nervous system that is actually tracking the world. And it's tracking the world to make sure that you are safe. And the parasympathetic nervous system is the world's best lie detector. It can tell in a moment's notice whether a leader, I'm about to curse, warning, is bullshitting or not. And when someone stands up and doesn't tell the truth in an organization and they have power, the primitive nervous system that can't parse a lot of nuance just says, unsafe, red alert, let me out of here. And then we do something really extraordinary in our organizations. We then say to that group of people, now go be innovative. Go be creative. <laughs> go solve our problems take risks <laughs> it's like yeah good luck with that <laughs> never gonna happen right and and so you know to go back to your point the inner work is about cutting through that process it's about saying in front of the team for example i am scared that we're going to fail as an organization I don't know what the future is going to bring. And the result is that that's, that's bringing up childhood experiences for me where I'm worried about whether or not we're going to be able to pay the bills. Even though my conscious brain says everything's going to be fine. Right? So it's not a therapy session. It's just simply acknowledging the truth of what's actually going on in the room. Pausing creating space for other people to say, oh boy, when you are 
being truthful like that, I can then relax. And so, because when I was a kid, everybody told lies. Nobody talked about the elephant in the room, right? And now we can be empathetically connected to one another. And then we can make magic together. Real magic. And I am sure you have seen it with your clients. When people do the inner work, and look, it's it's not for the faint-hearted. People would rather check a box, bring in a consultant to put them through a process, right? Take a course. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's for those, though, who I think are getting tired of getting the same result. They know something is wrong, and that inner courage kicks in. And they're like, you know, I really want to step into more of who I truly am. I just might not know how to do that. So I need a guide. But I'm kind of tired of just going through the motions or using chemicals or having my relationships fray on the edges, having people afraid of me, knowing we can be better, but we don't know. All of those things, Jared, right? It's, uh, you know, to, to put it a slightly different way and build upon it, being an adult is not for the faint-hearted. It's, it's, it's why we struggle, right? We, we, we somehow hit these sort of chronological ages and, and, you know, hopefully your son is responding to the fact, I'm imagining he's in his 20s, perhaps? 19. 19, okay. God bless. And, and you know, um, you know, he's looking at, look at the world that he's inherited from us. Right. And if nothing else, what we want to do, and I'll speak to him now. Um, sorry about that. Sorry about the world we left you. We're going to do what we can to fix it before we leave this earth. Um, and the most courageous thing that you can do going into the next 20, 30, 40 years of your life is to commit to your own inner development. So tell us the story. Talk about children. Tell us the story, Jerry, please, about the spider tattoo. <laughs> so I'll show you the tattoo. So first of all. Oh, yeah. There it is. There you go. Love it. So, so it's a Virginia Garden spider. It's about four or five inches long, and it tattooed over my heart. I was uh, on a retreat, uh, a soul quest retreat. Uh, run by a group called Animus Valley Institute, led by a guy named Bill Plotkin, who is a brilliant eco-psychologist, Jungian eco-psychologist. And I went, uh, this is a long story, so your producer will have to deal with it. I, I went to a experience and we had had this long evening of drum circle and really diving deep into the work that we've done. It was during a period of internal exploration for me as I was sort of midlife and transitioning through a lot of different work expressions. Anyway, I had this powerful, powerful dream that involved my kids. And I was in the dream going to this beach house and uh, it was, uh, the kids were very excited about going to the house, but I had this sense of foreboding. And I went into the house and the kids in the dream ran throughout the house and were very, very excited. I have three kids who are now 31, 20, soon to be 29 and 24. But, you know, in the dream, they were munchkins. 
And I went down to the basement, right? So think about the symbolism of this. And the basement was, was like a forest floor. And sprouting from the forest floor were all these mushrooms. And I was terrified by this. And so I ran upstairs and I yelled to the kids, get out, get out. We have to get out of the house. Okay. So this was the dream. So I'm back in circle and I tell this dream and Bill says to me, get out. I said, what? Go out into the forest. I want you to find those mushrooms. I want you to apologize to those mushrooms. And I want you to ask the mushrooms what message you needed to hear from them that you were too afraid to hear. So I go out and I'm starting to mutter to myself, like, what the hell am I doing? I'm at this retreat. How have I come to this point in my life where I'm walking through the forest trying to find mushrooms to have a conversation with, not to ingest, right? So I'm walking and I'm muttering and I'm like mad at myself and all this stuff. When I look down and I see the mushrooms that I had dreamed about and I'm shocked. And so I get down on my knees and I start crying and I say to the mushrooms, I'm sorry, I was too scared to hear your message. What did you want to tell me? And the mushrooms say to me, go to your spot. I'm like, okay, this is just weird. So I had found a spot in the woods and I go to the spot in the woods and I'm sitting there. This is a spot I had spent a night in the dark. And I'm like, what is happening to me? This is just totally bizarre. And by the way, again, I have not ingested any chemicals. Maybe some caffeine. That's it. So I look over to my right and there's this beautiful spider web with little dewdrops on it, like jewels. And the spider walks into the center of it. And I say, okay, that's it. I'm done. Like, what am I here to learn? And the spider says to me, you worry too much. Your kids are going to be okay. And it floored me. And so I got the spider tattoo to remind me that I worry too much and that the kids are going to be okay. And if I can hold on to those two thoughts, everything else is pretty much manageable. Isn't that getting us to the core of what um, oftentimes is so painful for us? Are our kids going to be okay? I love that, Jerry. So here's what I'm thinking in response to that. Your ability to listen to these off the wall, what the hell are they talking about? What in the world? How did I go from JP Morgan to talking to mushrooms, right? Like, what is wrong with this? <laughs> but your ability to trust and to listen is what brought you to that wisdom and that comfort. It's... Um... Thank you for noticing that. I appreciate that. My, my former psychoanalyst, Dr. Sayers, used to say the very same thing and be shocked at um, my willingness. I wasn't always willing. A lot of times I was, you know, super skeptical. A lot of times I, uh, and, and to be clear, I don't really believe the mushrooms were speaking to me. I really believed that it was my unconscious speaking just the way, just the way your unconscious will use a dream to send an image, right? I mean, in in a dream state, we think nothing of 
saying, I had a dream where mushrooms were talking to me. Well, call, call it a waking dream if you want to be skeptical. The important issue is not whether or not the mushrooms spoke to me. The important issue is what was the message. So the spiritual reveals itself in many ways. And our job is to listen to that, listen for that, find ways to connect to that. The, the human species has always used art and parable and storytelling to communicate important truths. You know, uh, you know, when Christ used, you know, his parables, they, they may not have been taken literally. But the point is the message behind it. That is the essence of a parable. And when we, when we get to see that so much of our life experience is in fact parable, you know, as I, as I said in my book, we're just, you know, creatures sitting around the campfire at night, scared to heck of the dark, telling each other stories to make sense of the world. You said it so eloquently and elegantly in your book. You called it having, no, help me out here, the heart of the storytelling. No, I'm not getting it. What did you call it? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me what see. are you referring to? Oh, you're talking about the power of our stories, and you refer to yourself as the holder of stories of your heart, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the name. That's another quest story, and that is the name that came to me uh, when I was on a four-day, uh, three-night water-only fast in the desert. Again, no chemicals involved, water-only, but the name that I heard was that that is, that is who I am to be. I am not. I am more than just Jerry Colonna. I am holder of stories of the heart. And I really don't know what to say to that. Sometimes there's no words. But I do believe this world would be a different, more loving place if we could all own our own stories. I, I, I would build on, on that by saying, can we all hold each other's stories? Because, because it's hard to own your own story if nobody wants to listen to you. And if no one says, I hear you, that's right, and I'm holding this with you, all the tension, it's living in the end, the pain and the joy, the magic and the heartbreak. So last night I reread your poem, called Listen, because I really believe that our ability to listen deeply to ourselves, to each other, is one of the great connection creators. It activates our connection wiring and changes our neural pathways, the ability to truly listen. And I'm going to share three lines of it with our listeners. Um, listening opens that which pain has closed. In listening, we are healing. We are never healed, but forever healing. And I just so love that idea. Because in the 12-step rooms, in the church basement rooms, 
We call ourselves recovering. We never say we're recovered. This is a process of willingness and openness and listening, Jerry, right? Thank you for for bringing those words in. I I appreciate your hearing them as well as you did. Um, You know, the last line of my book is, and with that, I mastered the art of growing up. And it is an art. It is a practice. We don't say, and with that, I grew up. And, And we are recovering. We are growing. We are healing. There are always more layers of the onion to explore. And that, I'll acknowledge, can sound overwhelming to people who are just beginning the process. And so I'll speak to them just for a moment. It's okay. It's okay. There is no end game. But your ability to to practice the art gets stronger and stronger. And suddenly you find yourself as a wise old man who somehow has caught the attention of a 19-year-old young man whom you've never met. Well, and who literally said to me before he left the house this morning, do you have an extra copy of Jerry's book? Leave it on the kitchen island, please. I'd love to read it. So don't be surprised because he's kind of taken after his mom a little bit. You might hear from him. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you one last question. Since the podcast is called Saving You a Seat, who, Jerry, would you want to save a seat for and have a heart-to-soul conversation with? Oh, Bruce Springsteen, without a doubt. <laughs> oh, tell me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a Jersey girl, I love that answer. Totally. <laughs> um, you know. Why, why? Well, uh, I first listened to Born to Run when I was 13 years old. And there's a, there's a line in there about this town rips the uh, bones from your back. It's a death trap. And boy, that blew me away. And then periodically in my life, there have been these moments where a song will come out, a song, you know, and, and it just knocked me on my ass. And then a few years back, his autobiography, he, he, he published his autobiography, which I cannot recommend highly enough. And there is, there is something incredible about a childhood hero who stands up and bravely, fearlessly opens his heart and says, oh, by the way, I spent 25 years in psychoanalysis. And here's what I learned. And here's how it relates to the lyrics of the songs that you have come to love. And so I could talk to that guy for hours. And my goal would be to get him to talk about his father in such a way that he would cry. No, just kidding. Well, you, you are not the CEO whisperer. Maybe you are the CEO tear maker. Oh, <laughs> that, that, I believe, is a privilege. Because I don't think you make people cry. You invite them to feel deeply enough, Jerry, to be vulnerable enough and safe enough that they can cry. Big difference, my friend. Well, as a Jersey girl, I think you'll 
you'll appreciate this language. It's not so much about being vulnerable. It's about being real. Be freaking real. It's okay. Anyway. Okay, so our listeners are going to want to find you. Where can they find you? Well, probably the best way is just the the company website, which is reboot.io, reboot.io. I'm also on Twitter at Jerry Colonna, J-E-R-R-Y-C-O-L-O-N-N-A. Those are probably the best ways to sort of track me. When I show up on podcasts and stuff like that, um, we always put that out on, uh, on Twitter. Awesome. Jerry, I could talk to you for hours. So thank you for being here and for being you and for doing your work. We all need it so much. Thank you. Well, thank you, Karen. And, and tell your son he's more than welcome to email me, but he's got to do some journaling. Okay. I will. <laughs> I will. Thanks again. Take a good walk for me on the ranch out there, okay? I will. I will. You take care now. You too. Bye, Jer. Bye. Stay connected. Hit the subscribe button and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. If you want to use the power of connection to transform your life at work and at home, get my book, The Connected Leader at theconnectedleaderbook.com. And for a limited time, receive a signed copy with free access to my Connection Manifesto Workbook and the Connect 7 Assessment. Again, to get your signed copy of my book and free access to connection tools, go to theconnectedleaderbook.com.